Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to the Game Podcast from the Times. I'm Piers Morgan, and this week I'm not alone because Susanna Reed is in the studio alongside me. Yes, hello, Gab. Piers. <laughs> Sorry, Piers. Uh, it's great for us to be reunited together uh, in the studio. We are back after another Premier League weekend full of surprises. Later on, we'll be discussing the London side that's top of the table. That's right, it's Watford. I know, no, not strictly speaking, not London, but come on, bear with me. And also, what's up with this goal? Goalkeepers playing out from the back. Yeah, good question. We'll find out if you're more in the Andy Gray camp or the David Priest camp. Oh, yes, we will find out more on that as well. In the studio with us, it is James Gearbrand. Hello. And down the line, the chief football correspondent for The Times, it's Oliver Kay. Good morning. Or afternoon or evening, depending on where, <laughs> where you're listening. There's one place to start, obviously, because partly because, of course, they're absolutely massive and the most famous team in the history of humanity, but also because we don't just want to talk about them um, when uh, when they're struggling, do we? That's right. Manchester United, they doubled their points tally uh, for the Premier League season with a 2-0 win over Burnley. Turf Moor on Sunday. We'll get to some of the shenanigans just to get the game out of the way. Ollie, they were good, right? Lukaku could have had four or five. Yeah, they were, yeah, they, they were very good. And if, if they... If they um... I mean, if you look at the performances of of the bigger teams over the weekend, I mean, Tottenham obviously lost, and Arsenal and Chelsea and Liverpool and Manchester City all won with some degree of difficulty, and and Manchester United were totally in control, really, from first to last, and if anything, um, they were unflattered by a a 2-0 win. There was the penalty saved by Hart from Pogba. There was the um, deceptively fraught period that followed the... um, the Rashford sending off, and there was the the fact that they they created enough chances for, you know, for Lukaku alone, who was very impressive, to have to have scored more. And it was not saying it was scintillating or beautiful, but it was one of the best performances I've seen from United for quite some time. You know, looking back to last season, it was it was tough, spirited, resolute, organised, um, and more than good enough going forward. So yeah. If that's to be um, the performance level um, from now on, they'll, they'll have no problems. Ollie, you were at the game, um, and obviously Gab has sort of alluded to the shenanigans off the pitch. Um, there was the banner that was that was flown uh, in protest by some of the fans. Tell us about that and, and the indications and, and why that's all happening. Well, the um, plane was trailing a banner which said um, Ed Woodward, specialist in failure. Um, Ed Woodward being... United's executive vice chairman and um, the guy to whom Mourinho 
signs his uh, signs off his text with big kisses to the twins, etc. And all, all very happy, clappy, and all, all, all very lovely, lovely, lovely behind the scenes. Yet we know that no matter how much people like Gab and me and and and, and others have, have raised questions about Woodward's football now and football vision over the um, over the last five years, his vision being negligible in my opinion. Um, he has not been a, a figure in the firing line for United's fans until Mourinho turned the fire on him a couple of weeks ago. Mourinho was trying to get him to sign, you know, to do more in the transfer market, to sign a couple of defenders that, that he wanted. Woodward had other ideas. Mourinho is clearly unhappy about that. Woodward was clearly unimpressed by Mourinho's um, sort of list of targets and, and, and the money it would cost to, to, to sign them. And it's all very sort of dysfunctional behind the scenes there and it has been for some time to be honest but it's only now thanks to Mourinho's intervention and public comments that that, that Woodward is getting it in the next of the fans and, and so it comes as slightly um, disingenuous you think when, when Mourinho turns around afterwards and says oh you know Edward would won 2-0 today which um, which is um, I'm, I'm sure Edward Wood won't be the first person he'll be thanking at the end of the season if, if they win a trophy Gab Ed Woodward, you've met him. What's yes. he like? Yeah, no, I, I don't think I'm the only one who's met him. Um, but I hadn't met him before. Um, we, we, we shared a, a car together. Um, he's, a, he's obviously a very sharp guy who knows a lot about a lot of things. Um, I think what, what Ollie touched upon is, is the dynamic. And I've made the argument before that post-Ferguson, and Ferguson had his own people, um, I thought it would be very helpful to have a director, a football figure, maybe not so much with Moyes, but certainly with Van Hal and certainly with Mourinho. The reason you do that isn't just about recruitment, although that's a big part of it, but also to kind of provide a counterweight to to the manager, which I think um, which, which I think is important. And in terms of recruitment, it's not just like this really annoys me when you get sort of, you know, ex-pros on television being like, well, you know, the chairman's got to back the manager, back the manager, which basically just means give the manager a load of money so that the manager's agent and, and the manager's agent friends can go and bring in players, right? It's absolute nonsense, you know, and it doesn't, no serious club does that in, in 2018. Nor does it mean that, you know, Ed Woodward goes out there and says, I really like the look of Victor Lindelof and uh, he's going to be really good one day. Let me go and buy him. But I think what it does mean is that whoever does the recruiting and the manager work together identifying targets and then putting a value on those targets and then negotiating for those targets. I think negotiation is a skill and specifically negotiating for footballers is a different skill than just negotiating a, a, a contract of a different kind. And And I think that's something that United could have benefited from. I think United ended up overpaying for certain targets, mainly because they weren't actually bidding against anybody. Paul Pogba, uh, who I think still think is a great signing, will come good. But that was a situation where he was leaving Juventus. There was nobody else bidding for him. You know, you could have maybe maybe driven it a bit more. I think having a guy who's got long-term relationships with, with certain other directors of football and agents could have helped you uh, maybe navigate those waters a little bit better. You know, there are many criticisms of, of Mourinho that aren't fair, but I think the one about short-term thinking is is entirely fair. And And I don't think it would have been the right thing to do to bomb out Martial or bomb out Rashford and, and bring in, say, Willian or Perisic on top of Sanchez. It, it, it's making a a squad... I mean, everybody felt that United needed a long-term rebuild when, when he arrived. That's not happened, really. 
I thought it was not Woodward's worst move when he said, sorry, Jose, we're not going to sell Martial. If anything, we might open contracts, uh, talks on a new contract with him. Just just to jump in on all this point about the, the lack of long-term thinking, I feel that's something that's sort of, that's echoed on the pitch. My kind of overall impression of United is that they're quite a reactive team. If you look at the, the teams he's he's put out, obviously he's he's played a, a different team in, in all four games so far. And yesterday, obviously, he brought in Fellaini and, and Matic. It's quite specific things to combat the threat of Burnley. And of course, to a certain extent, that's good. You, you want to be adaptable and, and you want to be able to kind of adjust to different challenges. But I still feel... I don't think Mourinho knows what his best 11 is. There are a lot of unresolved questions that I still don't think we really know the answer to. I think, what's the best central defensive partnership? I don't really think we know what's the best kind of midfield configuration for getting the best out of Paul Pogba. Maybe, to you know, to be fair to Manchester United as the season goes on, maybe we'll find that that's Matic and Fred in the three-man midfield. But at the moment, I don't really think we know. And I think... Yesterday, his game plan was was spot on. I actually thought his game plan against Tottenham was quite good as well, but they were just a bit unlucky. And I think they'll get a lot of wins by the virtue of that and and the individual talent they've got in the squad. Where I'm kind of more unsure is the long-term growth of the team because there's still quite a lot of uncertainty around his best eleven. Well, let's focus then on the team that they beat yesterday, Burnley. It's not been a good start. It was, what, their 10th game of the season yesterday? They've picked up just one point so far in, in the Premier League. And, and Oli, is it the fact that they've had the Premier League and they've had the Europa League to contend with that it's just been all too much for them so soon? I really think it has been. I mean, I, I, I go back to um, the 10th game in all competitions. Two of those games have gone to extra time. They've been to... Turkey, they've been to Greece. The only games they've won over that period have been in extra time. They have clearly found it really, really tough. And I, I don't. I mean, Sean Dyche has been putting quite a brave face on it, saying, "Oh no, 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 it was, it was a really good experience." I think if you asked him honestly, would he rather have not had that experience than had it? I think he would rather have not had it because I think it's really inhibited them in the start of the season. It's sad to say that, but I, I do believe it, it, it's undermined them and. They didn't, to me, look like the Burnley that we saw last season um, yesterday. I know it was against a really, really good team, really much better players than they've got. But the central defence alone, I, th- I, th- I thought me and Tarkovsky looked look, look, look tired. I thought in midfield, Westwood and Cork looked a bit tired, which is not something you'd associate with, with them. And delivery from wide areas even wasn't, you know, th- that looked a bit tired at times. So taking nothing away from United because they, they were on it from minute one. But I, I do think Burnley look like a team who will look back on elimination from the Europa League as a non-too-subtle blessing in disguise. I think they've also had a lot of injuries. Because if you mm. look at their squad, um, this is not a small squad. This is actually a squad where he's got a lot of options. If you look at who was on the bench um, as well against United. you know, I mean, I'm not saying it's Cristiano Ronaldo, but... It's players who've certainly done a job in the Premier League and done a job for Sean Dyche before. Well, let's uh, seamlessly move on to another team in Claret and Blue. Uh, they don't even have a point yet. West Ham, four defeats out of four under Manuel Pellegrini. Uh, James, is it time to panic yet? I do think the, the early signs have been, have been worrying for West Ham. There seemed to be quite a lot of optimism towards West Ham before, before the start of the season. and They did 
see quite a lot of business in the in the summer transfer window. To me, there are n- not a lot of signs of of real sort of cohesion with West Ham. They've got a back four where they've been playing sort of apart from Aaron Cresswell, three new signings, and and there doesn't really kind of seem to be much sort of gelling going on there. And and then you've got what I think a lot of people would have felt was one of the the big issues watching West Ham last season, a sort of lack of kind of legs and, and sort of dynamism in central midfield, which doesn't really seem to have been remedied at all because you've got Jack Wilshire, who for all his qualities is not really the kind of player to solve that problem, has, has come in to play alongside Mark Noble. Cheku Kuyate has been sold. Obviously they brought Carlos Sanchez as well, but he equally has not started particularly well. So I, I think they have got problems. And just one final point on West Ham. Of course, when you look at their start, they had two tough away games at Liverpool and Arsenal. They lost, though, at home to Bournemouth and to Wolves. And then when you look at their upcoming fixtures, it's Everton away after the international break, then followed by Chelsea at home, Manchester United at home, Brighton away, and then Tottenham at home. It doesn't get much easier for them, does it, Ollie? No, I think looking at if you'd looked at their start as as being you know the games to the end of September, you'd say God, that, that is a really tough start, and they need to get points on the board in those two home games against um, Bournemouth and and Wolves, and and the fact that they haven't, the fact that they've lost both games, and and you know to lose that game on Saturday in such painful circumstances, really in in, in stoppage time, I think it would just mean that. The, the the positivity with which they started the season is 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 gone already, and 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 we've seen what happens when the atmosphere around West Ham in that stadium becomes a gloomy one. I was not sure about the appointment of Pellegrini when when he came in. I think he's a coach who had a really good reputation coming to England and at Villarreal and Malaga did really well there. His first season in England was really good, but I, I just felt his final two seasons at Man City, it was like they were treading water. It was like they were on autopilot. Um, they very rarely looked physically ready. They very rarely looked tactically like they'd, they'd been worked hard. And, and in a Premier League where I think more and more teams do look physically ready, do look tactically prepared, I think a team like West Ham who are wanting to be upwardly mobile need a manager who, who's got a really clear vision, who's going to be really hands-on, get his hands dirty, get drag them forward, inspire the players, inspire the fans. I don't know if that's Pellegrini. And I know he. And there are things that he's clearly very, very good at, but I was not sure he was the man for that job. I think four games in, I'm not advocating sacking him at all. I think every manager deserves longer than four games, but it's deepened the reservations I had about the appointment from the start. This season, with your subscription to The Times and The Sunday Times, you can watch every highlight and every goal from every game in the Premier League. It's just £8 for an eight-week trial. Let's talk instead about goalkeepers playing out from the back because it's uh, it's a big issue this weekend. Um, obviously, as far as uh, Alisson and Czech are concerned, Natalie. Mm, no, absolutely, yeah. Obviously, everyone was very excited when Alisson signed for, for Liverpool. And, you... and he's very handsome. <laughs> Do you know, I think I need to look at him more closely then if you're saying that. I, I mean, not that I spent a lot of time looking at what <laughs> dudes look like, but I think empirically, Allison is one of the more handsome footballers in the Premier League. Wouldn't you agree, James? I, I would, but then again, Loris Karius also had his admirers, so 
Yeah. I don't know. But yeah. anyway, this is I not why we're talking no. about. We're talking about talking, playing. <laughs> and about I don't think that's back. the reason yeah. for what happened at the weekend. Um, yeah, he, of course, attempted to dribble past Kelechi Iheanacho before being dispossessed and it led to uh, Leicester scoring. It was the first goal that Liverpool conceded. Um, Jurgen Klopp has said it won't happen again. Why are more and more teams playing out from the back? Well, I think the idea is that if you have an extra ball-playing uh, guy at the back, uh, you have more options, right? It keeps the other team. Uh, it keeps the other team off balance. You know that you know it's not just going to be a long ball into midfield, which becomes which becomes a fifty-fifty. It allows you to recirculate the ball very well. Um, if you have a guy who's if you have a guy who's good at it, it's interesting because I mean this came under a lot of scrutiny uh, with Pep Guardiola originally. Uh, all he brought in Claudio Bravo specifically uh, for that reason and. But it's the kind of thing that over time helps you play better, but equally when you make a mistake, you look like a fool. We can all see Alisson is good with his feet. That is one of the things that led Liverpool to commit all that money to signing him. I mean, it, that is one of his strengths. He's suited to the style they want to play, but that was just stupid what he did on, on Saturday. And he'd had a warning against Brighton the week before. Um, it wasn't just the that beautiful piece of skill, the first touch that knocked it over the um, knockout at Anfield, but there was another one which where he looked like he'd got slightly carried away and he, and, and he lost the ball in the penalty area and won the, won the tackle. I think Klopp would probably have told him, all right, we know you're good at that. That's why we bought you, but don't overdo it. In the same way that you'd say that to John Stones or the young Rio Ferdinand or, or whatever. So the mistake that he made on Saturday was stupid, irresponsible, etc. And as Klopp said, you can't imagine it happening again because he's probably um, been um, told that in, in no uncertain terms. But in terms of the way teams want to do it in general, I have less issue with Alisson trying to play out from the back than with Arsenal trying to do it with a goalkeeper and with central defenders who seem completely ill-suited to playing that way. Petr Cech has has never played in the type of team that wants to play out from the back to that extent. I'm not, I'm not saying Arsenal of the last few seasons always hit it long, but but it wasn't that emphasis on playing in, in, in tight corners, playing it out to the centre of the end, playing one-twos, etc. in their own penalty area. And to change that style is important if that if that's what Emery wants to do, then then obviously buy into that. But I think you've got to have the the players to, who can play that way and to, and to think that you can sort of teach an old dog new tricks is perhaps more of a concern, even though they got away with it yesterday, than, than, the, um, than the daft mistake that Alison made. James, you're a big burned Leno guy, right? Isn't, <laughs> isn't this why they bought Leno? I find, yeah, I find the whole situation around burnt Leno quite confusing, to be honest. I mean, the signings of Kepa, Rizabalaga and, uh, and Alison moved the needle a bit in terms of, you know, goalkeeper transfer fee but 20 million is still a big amount of money to spend on a goalkeeper I think Bernd Leno is something like the eighth most expensive keeper of all time and the rest of the top 10 unsurprisingly have all you know come in to be the undisputed starter I find it very odd that you spend 20 million on a goalkeeper you've got a keeper in Petacek who I think is still kind of competent at Premier League level but was not coming off a great season last season he's he's pretty old for a an elite keeper. Um, Leno is like 10 years younger than Czech. Exactly, but, you know, you can't phase a goalkeeper in. It's not really like an outfield player where you can sort of give them 30 minutes here or there. 
it's not like Leno was signed particularly late during the summer. I think he was signed quite early. And it sort of feels like if Emery really trusted Leno, he would have started the season with him as his number one. The the, the difference between Czech and Leno is, is sort of, I mean, they're completely different goalkeepers. Czech is actually, if you actually look at his kind of distribution stats, they're not dreadful. But one thing that he is really pretty quite average at is playing the ball out with his feet in open play, which is obviously a big problem if you want to play like that. And Leno is really, really superb at that. That's one thing that he's really excellent at. Um, but the slight issue with Leno is that he's not actually a very good shot stopper. I think he's underperformed expected goals in, I think, each of the last six seasons, which if he comes into the team, that potentially, you know, for a team that is giving up a lot of shots at the moment, that is going to be a real kind of test of the uh, of the uh, the punditocracy, whether we can uh, get on board with a keeper that isn't actually very good at stopping goals. But, of course, the value of having someone like Lena, who's very good at distributing the ball, and I think we saw this to a certain extent with Edison last season, is that ultimately you beat the press and you keep the ball better and you actually end up facing fewer shots as a result. So the best thing for Arsenal would, would be if they had, you know, a goalkeeper who was, you know, great at distribution and a superb shot stopper. But they don't so it's kind of a I guess it's sort of a kind of ideological decision that Emery faces. Yes we await to see what happens with Arsenal and those goalkeepers but of course Ollie Gareth Southgate chose Jordan Pickford as his number one for the summer largely I guess because of that distribution that he has with his feet. Yeah he did Um, and I think everybody would say that with hindsight that it was the right decision. Pickford had a really good tournament and, and that the way that he plays suited the way that England wanted to play more than, say, if it had been Jack Butland or Nick Pope. I think even going into that tournament, there were a lot of people who had doubts about, about Pickford. That was a decision that they made and they thought, well, look, we've got this, we've, we've built a defence around the ability to, to play out from the back because we don't think our midfielders are, are, are quite so good at, at, at that. So that that is so important to the way we want to play. So we need a goalkeeper that reflects that as well. And I think that's what Klopp has tried to do at Liverpool. That's certainly what Guardiola, in a, in a much more sort of zealous, <laughs> determined way, has done at Man City from from the very start. He, he was adamant that Joe Hart could not play the kind of football that, that he would need to play um, in order to be Manchester City's goalkeeper. Obviously, that was a difficult first season when Claudio Bravo was struggling, but I don't think anybody would dispute Guardiola's hot take on, on that. If you've got the players to, to to play that way, it's a brilliant way of playing. And uh, yeah, I can understand when Andy Gray or, or Sam Allardyce or whoever is is saying that too many clubs are trying to play the Guardiola way when when they just haven't got the the technical ability, whether it's the goalkeeper or the central defenders to do it. Not not every central defender has the ability to do what John Stones does. Not every goalkeeper has the ability to do what Edison does. And I agree with James when he says that Bernd Leno is far more equipped to play the type of game that, that Emery wants to play at Arsenal than, than Petr Cech is. And I think it's only a matter of time, really, before before we do see Leno. It wouldn't make sense to, to, to spend that money on a a younger goalkeeper and, and who is suited to that style and then not play him. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know that you necessarily need to 
play Pep Guardiola style to benefit from a goalkeeper who can play with his feet because Mm. sooner or later every team presses you. Even if you're a long ball team, you get pressed. If you have a guy who can actually pass it to somebody who can do something with it, surely that's better than a guy who just lumps it up the pitch. I think it's it's an essential part, I think, of, of, of a goalkeeper's skill set in the modern game. But just quickly, on the, on the subject of Liverpool, in this great video of Andy Gray and, <laughs> um, and Richard Keyes, in fact, there's two videos where, in which Gray makes the exact same joke both times. Um, <laughs> uh, they it's hired, a good joke, though. You've got to say it, haven't it's, you? It's, it's hilarious, <laughs> yes. It's, I don't want to spoil it for, any, for, for anybody. <laughs> Liverpool hired a throwing coach. Okay, so I'm just clarify this. I, I, I want to get your take, whichever one of you, James or, or Ollie, wants to speak up on this. Just to make it clear, he's not teaching people how to take throw-ins. People know how to do this already. He's a guy who's had some success in the past in getting players, certain players, um, to throw the ball longer, uh, throw the ball more accurately, um, throw the ball, uh, whether they want to throw it flat or looping based on the situation. And then the idea is then you design, and this isn't just sort of, you know, the old Rory, the lap chucking into the box. Um, I mean, that's an extra weapon, but the idea is you also design certain coordinated movements around it so that, you know, you get the ball in a better position. Um, I, It's marginal gains, I guess, like, I, I don't know. I What do you guys think? I don't understand why people are, are mocking this. I mean, if it works, it works. If it doesn't work, who knows? But I, I guarantee you this dude is making probably less than, you know, Simon Mignolet makes in two days. I don't mind at all. In fact, I, I quite like it. There seems to be kind of this weird, I think there's this kind of weird feeling that only, you know, you have footballing teams and then you have sort of Tony Pulis-style teams that sort of weaponize set pieces and that only they should really, you know, weaponize set pieces. And it's sort of an unbecoming thing for, you know, teams at the top of the table to do. But I don't really see why that should be. And I think, take the throw-in. A, it's something that you have a lot of during the game. There are a large number of throw-in situations. And B, obviously, you can't be offside from a throw-in. So... You know, to me, it, it may, seems obvious. It does, I, I mean, it you. kind of seems like a sort of obvious area. I mean, okay, maybe not, maybe not obvious, but I, you know, it's, it kind of seems like a you know an area that would be worth sort of you know maybe kind of yeah seeing if you can exploit it a little bit. You look at his record. Uh, this guy Gronemark, um, he was with um, Midgetland and, and Horsens in in Denmark last year, and apparently they scored twenty goals from long throw-ins between them in in, in the Danish top flight, which which seems like a lot and it's probably more than um i mean i don't know whether tony previous stoke ever got 10 in a season but it's certainly a lot when you're talking about the the difficulty in breaking down defenses and i think i think we're coming to a, a time where people are just starting to look beyond the you know not just the the sort of John Beck, Sam Allardyce, Tony Pulis reputation coach, but more modern, progressive, younger coaches are looking beyond the sort of tried and tested formulas for the set pieces in general. And, and you saw all the work that England had done in, on set pieces in, in the World Cup. And you know, God knows what, how that World Cup campaign would have gone if they hadn't done all that <laughs> work on set pieces because they, they barely scored a goal otherwise. Well, it's interesting what you mentioned about Thomas Gronemark because actually Brentford used him a few years ago. Perhaps yeah, that was yeah. the FC Michelin link with Matthew Benham and everything. But um, they used him, I think, specifically out in when they had a training camp pre-season. And actually some of the players 
who took on board what he advised them actually ended up throwing further. So they did learn, even from a very short spell with him, uh, quite a lot from him. So I personally don't see what's wrong with it. As you say, it's all marginal gains. It's all anything to improve your side. So to be mocked for bringing in a, a coach who can only add to your team, I don't see why that should be happening. Didn't Brentford um, also sort of try some very novel approaches with with, with free quicks? With, yeah, with, yeah. We had a set piece, um, yeah, a set piece coach that you came. You just have any set piece coach. You had the legendary <laughs> Gianni Vio, who this previously worked with uh, Fiorentina and AC uh-huh. Milan, and I believe is now working for Leeds United, who I think are doing pretty well. <laughs> You're right. I'm told. I don't follow the lower leagues. Yeah. Stop talking about the lower leagues. Selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Now, two 100% records went head-to-head at Vicarage Road on Sunday. It was Watford versus Spurs, and it was Watford who won out by uh, two goals to one. Uh, Four wins out of four now, much to the delight of Sir Elton John, who was in the stands, and James Gearbrandt, you were there uh, as well. Um, From what you saw, what are Watford's prospects this season, do you think? Well, I think you have to kind of um, conclude that Watford's prospects this season are quite good. I mean, A, I think their performances so far have been have been really good and, and B obviously they've now got 12 points on the board which really changes maybe what they can do and target from this season I think you know a lot of people I don't think I tipped them for relegation but honestly I probably would have had them down down there somewhere and and you know now unless they completely go to pieces they're looking like you know they probably won't even have to worry about that uh, although it has to be said uh, in quite a weird way because obviously in, in other ways they've had a lot of change the particular property they have of being very very good in the early part of the season seems to be quite consistent if you look at the three previous seasons they've had under Flores and Mazzari and Marco Silva they've started really well in all of them for them that the challenge will be to see if they can they can keep it going I, I know that's happened in the past I don't know I and I could be totally wrong about this and obviously I don't expect them to keep winning every single game and stay top of the table but maybe what's a little bit different this season is they have depth. I, mean, I, was, I was just thinking about this. Like, you know, if there is a dip, if, you know, I, I think Ducouré is fantastic. I think Capoue's played well. But, for example, if there's a dip in central midfield, you know, you've got Nathaniel Chalaba, for example, who can come in, who, you know, is still in England international, right? And if he's back and fit for his injury up front, if you want to change it up, you've got De Lafayette who can come in. Um, so 
they do have options, you know, quality options, I think, to, uh, uh, to keep the side fresh uh, if need be. That said, I wonder about this. Was this also kind of Tottenham and Pochettino? And as much as we adore Pochettino on the show, right? We had Guillaume Balaguer here. We have a big Poch, Poch loving. <laughs> I, and yeah, there's benefits of stability not changing. I just wonder if sometimes he doesn't get a little bit too clever by half. I, I don't understand the back three in this game. I don't understand. I mean, you were there. I, it looked to me on, on television, at least, and again, I admit it, I'm just looking at a little box. It looked to me like you leave Dembele in there on his own, and that means that Ericsson and Ali have to take turns coming back, and that, and, and, and I think that that hurts you in in the final third. And when things don't go your way, and they, admittedly they did play better in the first half, but in the second half I thought when the game's turned, you're looking for something different off the bench or whatever, and all right, let's bring in Fernando Llorente and start lumping balls to him. And surely there's, you would have developed a different... I, I don't know. I, I was just disappointed, perhaps because I, I like Poch so much. I don't think this was one of his better days, tactically. No, I agree. And I, I kind of agree with, with with everything you say. I think the back three... Sorry, the, back, the back three, I think... Another fist bump yes. from Gav. <laughs> the, the back three, to me, is really kind of weird slash interesting because at the start of last season... He played a back three pretty regularly. And it sort of looked like he was really moving towards developing the back three as plan A. And then for whatever reason, perhaps because they weren't entirely convincing with that system and obviously stuff happened with Alderweireld, they stopped playing that. And he's really only used it kind of quite intermittently since then. I also agree with you that one of the problems I feel that Tottenham have when they don't play well is that they sort of seem to struggle to create even though they have quite a lot of creators on the field it kind of seems like Ali particularly when he goes deep and and I know you kind of feel that Ali didn't have a great season last season even though he he was sort of playing in a more withdrawn role the first half of the season I think I mean the second half I think I think towards the end he did come on a little bit but yeah mm. his role I guess has slightly changed over the last 12 months like in the 2016-17 season he was really playing you know he was playing sort of almost the position that Lucas Moura played yesterday he was really playing sort of pretty high as a number 10 almost right up alongside Harry Kane at times and he's sort of shifted and sort of he's he's become more of a number eight and in a lot of ways I mean you know he's still he's still a great player but I do feel that sometimes when Tottenham don't play well something that I feel like I've seen more than once is Deli Ali and Christian Eriksson both dropping deep both kind of dropping into those same sort of areas and trying to do the same sort of thing and yeah, obviously the other the other big thing with Tottenham that I just think is so glaring is that they just don't seem to have anything coming off the bench. Obviously, it was a, you know you have Dyer, you have Rose, yeah. they're all supposed to be so good. And well, I mean, I guess this is what it all comes down to: the fact that they didn't strengthen in the summer, and the fact they they're, they're eleven there though. But no, no, their eleven is strong. We know their eleven is strong, and there's a few others. But like you said, there's no real game changer that well, could really come on. Iniesta, Harry Winks, he did come on but they didn't change the game. I think they're actually quite well stocked for sort of creative slash attacking midfielders. I think obviously Son wasn't there. One thing that seems to be a perennial problem for them, which they've never really solved, is they just don't have quality backup to Harry Kane. Llorente obviously gives you a point of difference because, as you know, he's sort of, he's a real plan B option, basically, but he just is not really of the requisite quality, in, in my opinion. He's, he's 33 years old. 
and he just really hasn't he hasn't done it for Tottenham at all. I think he's now played I think this was his seventeenth game in the Premier League and he's only scored once. Enough for this because I want to go to the predictions now. Oh Lee. you would, wouldn't you? That's because you're gloating and you're happy with what's going on right now. But let's find out how we both fared uh, in our weekly predictions league. A reminder, Gab, you won in week one and week two. We were all square, so it was pretty tight coming into the last weekend. This week, we were both absolutely spot on when it came to Chelsea uh, and Bournemouth. We both predicted 2-0 victory for the Blues, and we both predicted Bayern Munich to win 2-0 uh, away to Stuttgart. We narrowly missed out as Niko Kovac's men won 3-0 away from home, with Thiago Alcantara, interestingly, playing in that, but basically played without a defensive midfielder. I don't know, Niko Kovac, fearless. Well, we also both predicted Manchester City would beat Newcastle. And uh, <laughs> yeah, and we were both way off the mark on West Ham. They let us down. Uh, I thought they might draw with Wolves. Gab, you thought they might beat them, but it was, of course, Nuno Espirito Santo's side that uh, took all three points. So what did it come down to? Well, it all came down to League One, which is supposedly your wheelhouse, Natalie, not mine. Ah, uh, the leaders, Peterborough, with their 100% record, up against Donny. Natalie went for the posh. I went for Rovers because I had my faith in my main man, Grant McCann, going back to the club that sacked him so unceremoniously back in February. And I predicted not just the right result, but the right scoreline, too. 1 1. Very So it's very another good. victory for me, Markati 2. Sawyer nil. No, it's so upsetting. But I don't have a Grant McCann hotline, so I can't ring him to see how his team's doing like some people did. No, but I imagine you know many more <laughs> uh, football league managers than I do. Enough gloating. How about some quick hits? Yeah, Manchester City celebrating the 10th anniversary of Sheikh Mansour's regime overcame Newcastle thanks to two long-range strikes from Carl Walker and Raheem Sterling. James, here we go. Am I being nitpicky if I say that maybe it's a concern that they're not walking the ball into the back of the net and that they're just trying their luck from distance? I mean, I don't think Manchester City are playing as brilliantly at this stage of the season as they were last season. I think you are being a bit nitpicky. One thing I actually quite like about City is that they have a lot of different ways of scoring. Yes, they have those incredibly sort of brilliantly choreographed team passing moves, but they can also go route one brilliantly, as we saw with that goal that Edison assisted the other week, and they have players who can shoot from outside the box. Obviously, they're missing Kevin De Bruyne, and I think if you look at De Bruyne's contribution last season, both in terms of his assists and, and playing the pass before the assists, he was massively... <laughs> massively massively involved so I think part of the season for them is partly about how they weather the loss of De Bruyne can you score from outside the box twice in a game every match no but I think it's okay it's also hard when Rafa Benitez parks the entire uh, Tyneside transit authority in front of the net Uh, but speaking of Newcastle George Culkin has an excellent piece today on the Newcastle physio who has been there for 34 years and been through 28 managers uh, Gearbrand, do you think the performances like this one and the one against Chelsea built confidence or maybe have the opposite effect? Yeah, I'm kind of... Uh, I think Benitez will, will say that, you know, he... Obviously, they were 1-1 in both those games and only lost them by a single goal. And I think Rafa Benitez would say that he his approach was vindicated by the closeness of those games, at least in terms of the scoreline. And I think if the if the squad kind of buys into that, then I don't think it's a huge problem, personally. 
Everton were held to a one-all draw by Huddersfield. It's the sort of game you'd have expected them to have won. And if they're going to live up to that wage bill and the expectations as well, you'd have thought they were going to beat Huddersfield. Uh, what's gone wrong? Was it simply down to the fact there was no Richarlison suspended? One thing that I think when I look at that Everton squad is that there are an awful lot of players who are coming off not very good seasons. A, obviously, you've got the Everton players from last season who underperformed, the likes of Keane, Sigurdsson, Schneiderlin. They've also brought in a lot of players. I don't know, they have not many of them have played, but they've brought in a lot of Barcelona players who didn't play very much last season or when they did weren't very good. Richarlison has started really well, but obviously he's coming off he was coming off a season last season where he basically didn't score after about November. So yeah, I don't think there's a lot of I think there's quite a quite a sort of fragile confidence in that squad, potentially. Chelsea are also perfect, 4-4-4, four four four, uh, as they beat Bournemouth 2-0. Sari subs are key as Pedro and Giroud come on and change the game. Gilbert, should Sari just make things simpler by starting those two guys rather than bringing them on and waiting for them to uh, win the game for him? I don't kind of love the idea of starting Giroud at this stage in his career. I, I don't see him as a starting centre-forward for a team that has aspirations of winning the Premier League. I think Morata obviously has got, I think he's ultimately got more upside and he's obviously younger and probably a better fit for the way Sarri wants to play. And what's interesting about Pedro is that if he decides that Pedro is kind of you know good enough to be a starter in the team and obviously Willian is fit, I guess that potentially opens the door for the other option, which might be to play Hazard up front. Mm-hmm. That's there something we've discussed in the past. Yeah. See again. Uh, Gab, we've got time for one for you. You wrote about summer spending patterns in the transfer market. So anything we ought to know? Yeah. Well, I mean, the net spend of sides like Fulham and West Ham uh, is well chronicled. Maybe not everybody knows that they were actually third and fourth uh, in Europe in terms of net spend this summer behind uh, Liverpool and Juventus. I wasn't that surprised that 13 of the top 20 net spenders were Premier League sides and a lot of them sort of, you know, mid-table or lower Premier League sides because obviously there's such a financial windfall to the Premier League and such an imperative of staying up. What did surprise me is that more than half the teams in the Champions League sold players for more than they spent to bring them in, which, you know, I found a bit disappointing because I would have said, you know, if you're a Red Star Belgrade or, or, or a Bruges or something like that, you're going in there. You know you're going to have 15 to 20 million guaranteed income. Why not strengthen and, and, and have a go? It's just an odd transfer window overall. Okay, how about one for you then? <laughs> now, you tweeted this weekend about not just a victory for your beloved Brentford, but a victory for football. I know, quite dramatic. That sounds like something Seth Platter used to say. You know, <laughs> you know he says before every final, let us hope football will be the winner today. <laughs> no. are, are you channeling your, your inner Seth? Uh, maybe I am. I was just so incensed with what I saw on Saturday. Bear in mind, I'd seen Nottingham Forest win uh, home to Newcastle in the League Cup. They were brilliant. They thoroughly deserved their victory. Uh, they really took the game to Newcastle. They looked threatening every time they broke and they were entertaining. So I really expected uh, that they would give Brentford a good game because we're a team that likes to, to play out from the back. A hellenia of possession, lots of creativity and lots of movement. And I, like, I do know that when teams play away from home, they do like to change the, the way that they play. They have to set up in a way to counter the opposition. But I still expected more from Forrest. All they came to do was be aggressive, be physical, be brutal in their approach. They were persistent with their fouls. And bear in mind, they have the worst discipline record in the championship as well. And that's only after six games. Uh, They also moaned at the referee when things were going wrong all the time. And they time wasted from as early as five minutes into the game. Five minutes, the referee had to urge Costel Pantillamon to hurry things up. So if we'd have lost... Gigantic Costel Pantillamon. Huge, absolutely huge. But we still managed... 
<laughs> yeah, still managed to score two against him, though. It's kind of like when the X-Men toppled Galactus, right? Scoring against him? <laughs> yeah. You feel pretty chuffed, but I was more chuffed by the fact that I feel that we played football the right way in that game. Don't get me wrong, Brentford aren't perfect. We'll make mistakes. We'll make unnecessary fouls and uh, we'll have off days. But when we play well and we win and we deserve it, that's what I champion. And on Saturday, it was a victory for football because we played the game the right way, whereas Forrest, it seemed, just wanted to come and play through us. Is this where I point out that I've been reliably informed by producer Charlie Jones that uh, the man who manages Nottingham Forest is uh, Jose Mourinho's uh, Uh former assistant at Real Madrid during the dark days Mm. when uh, everybody accused him of playing anti-football and (laughs) everybody was was lodged up Pep's backside because we all loved him so much? I remember the borough that was led under a certain Karanka. And they were very difficult to beat, but they weren't pleasant to watch. That's all we have time for today. Many, many thanks to our excellent guests, uh, the only living Gearbrandt in captivity. Although I'm told, James, that uh, there's Gearbrandts in, in New Zealand as well, right? <laughs> that's right. That's, 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 that's our native there's small, habitat. There's a small enclave of, uh, of Gearbrandts living in, uh, in New Zealand, I believe. And also everybody's favorite northern country gent, Ollie Kay. Uh, remember, you can subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times to enjoy award-winning journalism online and on your smartphone or tablet for only £8 for eight weeks. Search The Times subscription for more information. And, uh, of course, the Premier League takes an international break because it's the Nations League. Who's sacked for the Nations League? Yay! (laughs) And we get to see the waistcoat again. Awesome. (laughs) We're going to be back on Thursday. Catch you then. The game is brought to you by The Times. For more information and more podcasts from The Times, head to thetimes.co.uk. 